Dirty Bird Podcast contains foul language and is not appropriate for young fledglings. Listener discretion is advised. Our intro music is brought to you by Ricky Pistone, aka Dick Piston. And our outro music is brought to you by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. Are you looking for a podcast today? With ornithology and humor you crave? Well, I know all these guys and it's birds they like. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're just a couple guys who really like birds. It's Dirty Bird. Yeah, they're pretty dirty, but they really like birds. Hello, and welcome to Dirty Bird Podcast, a podcast that tells you everything you need to know about an individual bird species with a laid-back atmosphere, like you're having a talk with a friend over a beer. And I'm recording right now up in my attic, my very chilly attic in Elkins, West Virginia. I apologize if there are any dogs barking in the background or people using chainsaws or the church bells ringing. Um, Usually I try to go out in the woods to record, but I don't really have the time this week to do so. Today's subject is the red-bellied woodpecker, one of my favorite woodpeckers to watch out here in the eastern United States. But before I go into talking about that bird, um, I want to first thank everyone for listening here through 20 episodes with me. I feel like it's a bit of a milestone. I'm coming up on the one-year anniversary of starting this show. And I hope that people like it, that they're listening. I basically created this show to talk about birds in a fun, engaging way. I mean, a lot of times I feel like I'm talking to my friends about birds the way people might talk about like a sports team or something. I'm like, did you see that Jay the other day at the feeder? He was like battling with a northern flicker and like pecked him off with his beak. And I think it's just so freaking cool um, and just wanted to talk about it in a more like laid back way than a lot of other bird podcasts and media that you see in general have. So thank you everyone for listening um, and thank you for people that are starting to kind of send stuff in, send comments and pictures. Um, Thanks to Dolly and Bib for sending some awesome pictures. They live on a beautiful property in Harrisonburg, Virginia and allow some researchers from JMU to come and study everything from blue jays to kestrels to saltwet owls on their property. And they've sent me some pretty amazing photos. So Definitely check out the Dirty Bird Instagram at Dirty Bird Podcast and also our Facebook page to see some of those. If you're listening, Dolly and Bib, keep sending me those awesome photos. I'm glad you're listening to the show. Also, thanks to Brandon for contacting me on Instagram about our Bard Owl episode. And Brandon is a big owl guy. He recently put up a screech owl box in his backyard and has a visitor this year that looks like it's making a little home. So, uh, awesome Thank you, Brandon, and feel free to reach out to me, guys. Um, Send me pictures of some birds, even if it's a blurry photo from your phone at a feeder. Like, send me pictures. um, Let me know what you think about the show. Tell me about your birding experiences, and I'll read them on the air or send me a voice memo. You know, you can just record one on your phone and then send it uh, via email, and uh, I can play that on the air. But, yeah, let me know what you all are getting up to out in the outdoors there. 
So today with the red-bellied woodpecker, before I launch into the full description about him, you know, my usual, I talk about how it was named and the evolutionary history and all these facts, I want to start instead with a Native American legend. So this story isn't specifically about red-bellied woodpeckers, but is about woodpeckers in general. It's a great tale told by the Mi'kmaq people. They're from northern Maine and the Atlantic coast of Canada. So this is kind of a little outside the range of the red-bellied woodpecker, but we can stretch our imagination and imagine that a bird might have made it up there and that they had observed it and applied this tale to it. So this story is called The Woodpecker Girls. And basically, in this story, there's Rabbit. And Rabbit is a big character in a lot of Mi'kmaq legends. He kind of goes on a lot of adventures. He's kind of a little tricksty and everything. But... Rabbit is wandering the wilderness, and then he comes across a wigwam filled with three pretty girls. These girls are wearing red feathers on their heads, they have long bills, and it turns out they are the woodpecker girls. Rabbit is hungry and tired, and he hoped that they would ask him for dinner, so he walks to the wigwam and speaks nicely to them. They asked him to sit down and eat with them, so he sits down and he waits for food to get served. So he's expecting, you know, them to cook up some dinner or something. I don't know, maybe Rabbit's looking for some turnips, something like that. But each of the girls takes out a little wooden dish, and then they run up the trunk of a tree. They stop there, and then they tap their bill up against the tree and bring up some of the bark and hold their bowl underneath it, and then the insects fall in like little grains of rice. They fill their dish with them, and then they run back down the tree, and then they cook the insects up for dinner. And it actually was a pretty good little bug feast, and Rabbit kind of afterwards slaps his stomach and says to himself, Hi-ho, how easily some people get their living. What is to hinder me from doing the same? So he asks the woodpecker girls to dine with him in two days, and he goes home. So Rabbit's watching what they did to harvest that nice old insect feast, and he's thinking that this is an easy way for him to get some food. So the girls arrive to his home two days later. They enter his wigwam and they sit down. So Rabbit turns to them and says, wait while I go and get some dinner. So you'd think he'd probably try out this method before he has them over for dinner, but no, he's just going to jump right into it. So he takes a dish and he ties an eel spear to his nose, thinking that's a pretty good adaptation for a bill. I'll just tie an eel spear to my face. So he climbs up the tree kind of difficultly, manages to make his way up there probably with a couple leaps and then he taps his spear bound face up against the tree but he can't find a single insect instead all he does is tears his fur and cuts his nose so bad that blood runs out and it stains all over his head and the girls kind of laugh looking up at him because they see the blood running over. Uh, You know, he looks ridiculous. He's got an eel spur tied to him. He's like barely climbing up this tree. But as the blood starts to run over his head, they kind of laugh and they're like, oh, he does look like a woodpecker. He has a red head. (laughs) Um, And then the grandmother, who I guess also came to dinner, um, says, I suppose he has seen one of us do that and is trying to do the same. And then the woodpecker girls kind of cry out to him master rabbit hi-ho come down from there and give me your dish so the rabbit ashamed and bleeding kind of just falls out of the tree and creeps up to the wigwam and the grandmother heals his head with herbs 
And then the woodpecker girls, they scurry back up the tree, and soon after, their dishes are full of insects, and they come back down, and somewhat nicely, they just give the food to Master Rabbit. So, although he's kind of left bleeding and ashamed, at least he gets a last little dinner of some bugs. So I like that story. Uh, <laughs> I love Native American folklore in general. There's always something kind of crazily like morbid about it um, in some of the stories. Like check out my J one. Those are some wild stories, my blue J one. Uh, but I like this, that he's up there, the rabbit, trying to act like a woodpecker, just hurting himself and manages to the only part he can pull off looking like a woodpecker is the blood staining his head. Um, and I talk a little bit more about woodpecker folklore with Native Americans in my uh, very first episode, Big Peckers, about the pileated woodpecker. And the redhead of woodpeckers is often associated with war or blood, um, not just in Native American cultures, but uh, across the world where um, woodpeckers reside, because kind of the red coloring on males is very common with them. But anyway, today's woodpecker is Melanerpsis carolinus, the red-bellied woodpecker. Now, the genus Melanerpus is a very successful woodpecker genus in the New World here, and it was first named in 1832 by William Swainson. And Swainson is pretty famous in the ornithological world. He has nine bird species named after him. And basically, the name Melanerpes, it uses the Greek word melas for black and herpes, which is Greek for crawling. So you can imagine something like um, herpes varicella, which is chicken pox, um, or the STD herpes. Both of them have lesions that kind of crawl along the distribution of a nerve along the body. And so that's why those diseases got those names. So he applies this because melanerpes, they almost all have like this black back. Some, and some of them, like our red-bellied woodpecker, have kind of a checkerboard black and white back. And then when they're walking up trees, they do appear to kind of crawl up them a bit. So that's how they got that genus name. The species name Carolinus it was given by Carl Linnaeus in 1758 in his 10th edition of his book Systema Natura, where he gives a lot of binomial names for animals and plant species. And basically kind of the Carolinus just applies to, it was kind of a generalized term for America um, at that time, like southeastern America. And they certainly do appear in the habitat of the Carolinas. So the red-bellied woodpecker, it's about the size of a blue jay, maybe a little bit on the smaller size, but it's super conspicuous. I mean, when you see this bird, it's usually clinging to the trunk of a tree. It has almost like a Z black and white checkerboard pattern on its back. And sometimes you'll hear the colloquial name zebra bird for this bird. Both males and females have red on their head. They definitely have red at the nape of their neck, um, and sometimes females will also have a little bit of red around the bill. But males will have an entire crest of red. It runs all the way from the nape of their neck up across their heads and then around their bill, too. The red belly that gives these birds its name is rarely seen because it's pressed up against a tree. This is one of those famous cases of some ornithologist kind of that had shot a bird giving it its name uh, after it saw it dead you know laying on its back with the red belly showing and really it's kind of less of a red on its belly and it's really low it's like kind of in between the legs it's almost like a rust colored or a pink orange almost like it looks almost like a smear um, on their belly 
And it's really cool when you see it. You you often get a good chance to see it if you have like a suet feeder at your backyard feeder because they'll come land on it and they're not really pressed up against a tree trunk and you can kind of see through the suet cage. So you can get a chance to see these cool little belly patches. It also is a very cool bird because individuals have a lot of color variation to them. Now, all birds have this. It's just a lot of times very subtle and hard for humans to pick out. But I can even tell it on these red bellies because some females will have kind of brighter patches around their bills and some won't. Um, and some males may have some different kind of markings with their red. So you can kind of tell individuals apart and really be able to recognize them. And like I mentioned, like all woodpeckers, you usually see these guys clinging to the side of trees. And unlike nuthatches, which will kind of turn every which way um, on a tree trunk, these guys only walk up trees. So say they want to access like a lower part on a tree, you'll see them, they'll kind of like drop down on the tree and then walk up to where they want to go. They also will like move sideways on the tree sometimes to reach a spot they want to get to, but I've noticed they seem... Like, rather than going sideways, they would rather just drop down further on the tree and then kind of walk up to wherever it is. They have an undulating flight pattern, which most woodpeckers have. That means they kind of flap-flap, and then they dip down. They flap-flap, they kind of dip down. But really the most distinctive part of this bird is its chuck-chuck call. You'll hear this all over eastern woodlands in the U.S. at all times of the year. I think it sounds really familiar to kind of the alarm chucks of a squirrel. When you piss a squirrel off, it'll kind of run up a tree and start doing these chucks. So that's kind of how I remember it. I hear that. I'm like, is that a squirrel? No, it sounds more bird-like. Oh, okay. It's a red-bellied. Audubon describes her call as a catter. And this word catter is kind of cool. It kind of sparked my interest because there's actually a bacteria that's a common cause of pneumonia. And it's called Moraxilla catterhalis, which, you know, gets its name because people that get infected with it get all this mucus and a cough and they're sick and just like, bleh. So Audubon believed that this bird sounded like he had a pneumonia. The red-bellied's range is pretty extensive. It's widely distributed across the eastern U.S. and is a very common bird. It's found east of the Great Plains, up north as far as Ontario, and down south into the Florida Keys. It's also found south along the Gulf of Mexico. The range of this bird is actually expanding north and west, and this is likely due to several factors, such as maturing forests that were previously cut in uh, New England that are starting to grow and mature, uh, providing more habitat. There's also a warming climate, so that um, helps this bird be able to survive winters farther north. And then also there's an increase in backyard feeders, which helps supplement its um, diet. Uh, then also other smaller factors too. The Great Plains are now broken up with a lot of suburbs. So that provides some land for this uh, bird to go into, whereas previously it wouldn't have been able to. They're largely non-migratory, but in the most northern parts of their range, they are known to kind of nest there in the summer and then retreat a little farther south in the wintertime. So the red bellies do migrate within their local ranges a bit, though, in the sense that in the winter they can be found in more bottomland, hardwood areas, where deciduous trees have dropped acorns and nuts. Throughout their range, these birds have been shown to follow Bergman's rule. Now, Bergman's rule, I've talked about this in several episodes, basically it states that species occurring at higher latitudes have larger body sizes in order to maintain heat, in order to have, like, you know, uh, 
less surface area to body ratio to to lose heat from. Um, And then that's always paired up with Allen's rule. Allen's rule states that northern species have smaller bills and appendages because you don't really want to lose heat through having this like super long bill or some super long feet or something like that. And I didn't find any studies showing that they followed Allen's rule, but they definitely follow Bergman's rule. The further north you go, the bigger those red bellies get. Populations of red bellies are doing pretty good right now. The estimate right now is there's around 10 million of them, and they appear to be increasing. So one of the reasons why these guys are doing so good is because they're a very versatile woodpecker. They have a very omnivorous diet. In general, they prefer hardwood trees um, and forest with large diameter trees that are suitable for nest building. Historical sources I found say that they love elm trees, but Dutch elm disease ravaged the U.S. in the 1900s and killed 75% of elms by 1980s, so they've had to adapt to other trees. And they prefer forests where there's a dense midstory, and this is unusual when you compare them to other woodpeckers in their range. Oaks, hickory, and maples are some of the favorite trees, but it also doesn't shy away from mixed conifer and deciduous forests. Down in Florida, where uh, it's found, there's a lot of pine trees there and also palm trees. It definitely makes use of those. So one of the most interesting things about red-bellied woodpeckers is their diet. So most eastern U.S. woodpeckers that we're used to, like the pileated, downy, hairy, they're basically insect eaters. Um, And they procure those insects by drilling into dead wood. But the red-bellied is highly omnivorous and it eats a wide variety of food. It's most often seen foraging on trees, cleaning insects from crevices um, in the bark or cracks. It seems to prefer tree branches over the tree trunk and especially likes dead limbs on live trees. The females actually seem to prefer feeding higher up in taller trees than males. And males also spend more time feeding on the trunk than females do. The females mostly stick to the branches high up in the tree. And the way they forage is they probe and glean with their bills to find bugs and bark. Sometimes they'll peck into woods similar to other woodpecker species, but really they kind of rely on finding the bugs that are hidden in the bark and hidden in the crevices. They also will feed extensively on the ground. The majority of their bug diet is made up of ground beetles, weevils, ants, grasshoppers, and cockroaches. They also may be an important factor that limits the spread of invasive uh, species, such as the emerald ash borer. This is an invasive species from Asia that was first discovered in North America in 2002. Studies have shown that areas infested with the emerald ash borer, the red-bellied woodpecker will spend significantly more time on ash trees than other trees, and presumably it's feasting on these invasive insects. So awesome, red-bellied, keep it up. I also saw some studies, too, um, looking at them in gypsy moss, and and they would eat an increased amount of gypsy moss when there were outbreaks. But it's not just bugs that they like to eat. One study that examined the stomach contents of 271 red-bellied woodpeckers found insects made up only 30% of their diet, and the other 70% was plant matter. Red-bellied woodpeckers love nuts, acorns, and seeds, and will sometimes wedge seeds into cracks, Um, and bust them open, similar to how a nuthatch does. It also really likes fruit and berries. Um, It eats the berries of poison ivy, Virginia creeper, wild grape, dogwood, and hackberries, just to name a few. It also has a passion for fruit, too. There's many stories of it eating apples in orchards, and in Florida in particular, it loves oranges. 
some farmers think it's a pest for eating their oranges. Others, you know, say it's only eating fruits on the ground. It kind of differs between accounts that you read. But in general, the way that it eats these large fruits is that it'll treat them the way it would like hammering into a tree trunk. It'll kind of hammer a hole into the apple or the orange and then eat out as much fruit as it can from that like little hole it made. And then, you know, it might make a couple other ones. But it kind of like chooses its fruit and sticks with it. It'll continually come back to the same orange, the same apple, you know, to keep feeding from it until it's like totally blood dry. One Floridian farmer said, It appeared that having once commenced on an orange, the woodpecker returned to the same one repeatedly until he had consumed the pulp, and then he usually attacked another very near to it. Thus I found certain clusters in which every orange has been bored, while all the others on the tree were untouched. And this habit has earned the bird the nickname orange sapsucker, or the orange borer, in some parts of Florida. So there's a bit of Florida man for you. Another interesting feeding habit by this bird was noticed by N.M. McGuire in 1932, who saw a red-bellied drive a yellow-bellied sapsucker away from his meticulously dug wells in a maple tree to steal the sap for himself. And from what I've noticed of watching these birds is they are pretty aggressive. Um, not so much when they're like in the woods feeding, um, they can get aggressive with each other, but they usually leave most of their birds alone. I've really seen their aggression at my backyard feeder. Um, the red bellied is one of the only birds that I've noticed that consistently will fight off starlings. Um, it's really cool to watch. It'll like, it'll get pissed. It'll open its bill and like be chucking at them and be like really mean. Um, and I wouldn't want to get pecked by that woodpecker bill. Like you see what that thing does to trees. Imagine what it would do to a starling, but, uh, they'll fight the starlings off for suet or for, um, you know, the platform feeder I have there. Um, and, uh, I noticed it's, you know, it's not just the adult male, it's not just the adult female. They actually had a juvenile that they were bringing around. So this thing's small, like this little juvenile female, um, she's like barely even bigger than a tufted titmouse at this point, like a starling could clobber her. And she's opening her beak, getting pissed at these guys, letting them know that no, like this is my feeder and you back off you invasive dicks from Europe. So yeah, she let them know. And it appears in the wild they they will fight off uh, yellow-bellied sap suckers to get at the the sap suckers will dig like little wells and trees and then come back from them and drink the you know sweet sap especially from sugar maples, and uh, yeah the, the red-bellied knows how to take advantage of its yellow-bellied cousin, and these red-bellies really do have a sweet tooth. It's not just fruit. It's not just the uh, sap sucker wells. Uh, I guess a sweet beak, not a sweet tooth. Um, but they've been observed even drinking nectar out of flower blossoms. And then people who tap sugar maple trees to make maple syrup, they've noticed that red bellies will come and drink right out of their collection troughs. It also has a thing for corn, too. And corn is often found in the stomach contents of red-bellied woodpeckers. It has been known to steal corn cobs right off the stock. I saw some claims that red bellies have preyed on domestic honeybee hives, um, but I haven't found any real evidence of this. I would think these guys would be more after the honey, knowing how you know much they love sweets rather than the bees themselves. That just sounds like too much work. Like they're gonna sting you. Like, let me just get at that honey, man. And as if this wasn't interesting enough, uh, probably the most interesting thing about these birds' diet is they have a bit of a morbid streak. 
Um, they will feed on small vertebrates, including nestlings of smaller birds. Red bellies have been recorded feeding on the eggs and nestlings of a wide variety of birds, including Arcadian flycatchers, tufted titmice, chickadees, American redstarts, and cerulean warblers, and that's just to name a few. Some of these bird species have also been observed mobbing the red-bellied woodpeckers uh, if they get too close to their nest, the same way they would mob like a marauding crow or blue jay that's coming for their young. And they're not alone in the woodpecker world for doing this. The red-headed woodpecker, acorn woodpecker, and gila woodpecker have all been observed eating bird eggs or nestlings. But the red-bellied also eats a variety of other small animals too. Um, it's been observed eating lizards, small minnows, crayfish, uh, those big old millipedes you see crawling around, big old snails. It also appears to like tree frogs a lot. Um, several articles I read mentioned finding tree frog bones inside red-bellied stomachs. So basically, if the thing's alive and small enough, it'll gobble it up. And by the way, those minnows, it mo like definitely didn't, you know, catch them the way like a kingfisher would. They probably had washed up and, you know, already kind of dead on lake shores or stream shores and the red belly just scooped them up. Some studies I saw that uh, small vertebrates and these large inver invertebrates like the millipede snails, um, all together they make up about 7 to 8% of the red-bellied um, stomach contents. You know, it's not a huge part of their diet, but it's, it's you know, it's up there. So rather than just strictly being these peaceful little bug and peanut eaters, they have a little bit of a checkered history. Kind of like the checkerboard pattern on their back, huh? Eh? <laughs> That was dumb. Um, but when you see these guys at your feeders, you know, kind of as they eat your suet or gobble up some peanuts, you know, kind of think, hmm, I wonder what else he's been eating today. If he was going after any crawfish or lizards or something. But to end on a good note, talking about these birds uh, and their feeding habits, I did read a report from Oklahoma in 1968 where a red-bellied woodpecker and tufted titmice parents were both feeding their fledglings in the same area. And one of these tufted titmouse fledglings was a bit big for his little bird britches and began to beg and pursue a red-bellied woodpecker who was holding an insect. And the tufted titmouse kind of was you know, giving a begging call, flapping his wings the way they do when they beg for food. And initially the red-bellied woodpecker like looked at him and hopped away, but the tufted titmouse fledgling kept pursuing him basically on this branch. And so finally the red belly just kind of gave in, gave him the insect and then flew away. Uh, and this researcher didn't notice any more feeding behaviors, but that's kind of cool that <laughs> he was like, all right, kid, here you go. Like now leave me alone. Um, and he had his own kids to feed too, so I don't know. He, he, he was just helping out. And red bellies will store food for the winter. Um, they'll store nuts, seeds. They'll also store bugs too, especially if it's a large bug. I saw a cool account where a red belly grabbed a cockroach, mangled the bug, and then wedged it into a crevice in a tree. Uh, hard to feel bad for the cockroach in this situation. Uh, but the red bellies appear to be a little lazy in their storage. They choose very easily accessible cracks and wedges and dead wood. They really like kind of, the, you know, when you see a vine crawling up the side of a tree, they really like to store stuff in there. Um, and also fence posts. Um, if you've ever noticed like an old fence post, they always have all these cracks in it. And those are just perfect for these red bellies. 
they don't they don't really like to hide it too much. Um, they just use an, an easy appearing crack and stuff it on in there. And one final note on their food um, that I also want to lump into another thing about these birds. So my National Geographic book from the 1930s, my handy dandy bird guide, um, and also the accounts of Audubon and some other real old accounts I've read of these birds mention that they have a distinctive smell. And I've personally never noticed this. I've been very close to these birds and I've never smelled anything. Um, Blue Ridge Wildlife Center, if any of you guys are listening, I know you all spend a lot of time with uh, these birds. Uh, have you ever noticed a smell? Um, has anyone out there ever noticed a smell to these birds? And in my research, the only thing I could kind of come up with is that maybe the smell is coming from them eating stink bugs because uh, stink bugs do make up a large part of their diet at certain points of the year. And maybe the bugs spray them while they're feeding on them. Or maybe, you know, the smell just like leaks out of their pores the way like you smell like garlic if you ate a bunch of garlic bread the night before. Um, I did look at a study, uh, the one I mentioned earlier, where they looked at over 200 stomachs of red bellies. And it looked like about 6% of the insect matter they found there was stink bugs. So, I mean... That's that's a pretty good amount, and if they got a real potent stink, like if they're anything like garlic, like you're gonna be sweating that out. Now that we're done with food, I want to talk a little bit about their color. So I mentioned earlier that individuals can vary in the color on their body, heads, and belly a lot, and this doesn't seem to be paired with specific regions. Uh, except I will talk about one population in Florida a little later. This means that really the color variation of, is random and it's not necessarily like oh birds in this region have this coloring the way you would see with like a subspecies or something uh in general there are like some trends though uh the red bellies that are east of the mississippi tend to have darker overall colors than those west of the mississippi and they also tend to have brighter red underbellies there is some conflicting evidence about the existence of subspecies i'll touch on that too those floridians you know they want their own subspecies. Um, but most sources really say it's a monotypic bird. This is really one species. But that's part of the fun of these birds is that um, they have some differing coloration between pairs. And then also that zebra pattern on their back is really cool, especially if you're out in the middle of winter and there's snow. Then you see this bird on a tree and the black and white is almost like one of those optical illusions you look at, you know, and then the red on their head is just as bright as a summer tanager. Um, it's really fun to watch. And they're able to keep these feathers bright and clean and waterproof through preening. And so uh, people don't really think of like birds as clean. I think because of, you know, city pigeons and house sparrows and some of the diseases we've heard about that we feel like birds are dirty. But really, like, birds are very clean. They're almost like cats the way that they're constantly preening themselves because they have to keep their feathers clean and dry and free from debris or they're going to freeze to death or they're going to get wet. So instead of licking their paws the way a cat does, birds use their bills and feet to apply oil to their feathers and to clean off any dirt. The red-bellied has an oil gland that's located near its tail, and they'll use their beak to rub the oil gland and rub the rest of their body. They also will put some oil on their beak and then put it on their foot and then use their foot to reach the hard to reach places like their head or their neck or their face. 
Redbellies also appear to take sand bass. Um, this is something many birds do where they'll find a nice patch of sand or loose soil and kind of use it to uh, bathe and uh, it's thought that they get some dust mites off that way. Redblades has also been shown to use sap. It's not entirely sure what they're doing here. They might be getting it from um, pine cones or from uh, branches, and they use that to also clean and coat their feathers. These woodpeckers have a lot of adaptations that help them be successful. Their feet, to start off with, are like that of a lot of other cavity nesting birds. It's zygodactylic, which means there's two toes pointing forward and two toes pointing back. Man, I'd love to play that word in Scrabble, zygodactylic. Um, this makes it perfect for clutching onto tree trunks or the lip of the nesting cavity. And then also, like other woodpeckers, they use their stiff tail feathers, these are called retrices, as kind of like a third leg to prop themselves up against a tree trunk. Now the red-bellied's bill and bones in particular are adapted for a generalist feeding strategy when you compare them to like woodpeckers that strictly stick up into the trees or are more used to feeding on the ground. So its anatomy kind of falls in between those two, so it can really exploit both areas. Its tongue is also way more maneuverable than other woodpecker species. It extends up to four centimeters past the bill and contains both a point and a barb at the tip. It's basically a fish hook tongue for grabbing insects or grabbing seeds and all kinds of stuff out of crevices. And it can really wiggle and move it around really well to like explore those cracks fully. It has a mucus gland under the tongue that coats um, the tongue in a sticky goo, while there's another mucus gland in the nostrils that uh, keeps wood chips and dust from entering the nasal passages. In general, males tend to have larger bills and tongues, allowing them to reach deeper into crevices than females do. And this is probably a good thing because it keeps the male and female from competing with each other. So the female probably sticks to kind of shallower cracks that she can reach, and then the male will uh, reach deeper into cracks and get food that the female wasn't able to get. And, you know, this keeps them from fighting over seeds or insects. And another cool thing about their feeding is they will use their wings and shoulders a lot, too. When they're on a tree trunk and, say, they're hammering at a food item um, or pulling something out, if a scrap of that food falls, they're able to catch it with their shoulders or catch it with their wing. I, I saw a council that even kind of cup their wing to catch a food item. So they're really using, using all parts of their body here to, to help them feed. All right. Let's get into the dirty birdie details of red-bellied mating. As far as our nesting and breeding goes, um, I'll start with a quote by this super badass ornithologist, Charles Bendir. Um, he has a bird named after him, um, Bendir's Thrasher, but that's not the coolest part of him. The coolest part is he received a promotion for gallant and meritorious conduct while serving as a Civil War officer during the Battle of Trevilian Station. As a history buff, I can't help but mention that Trevilian Station was the largest all-cavalry battle of the Civil War, um, and it got pretty bloody, so he definitely deserves these accolades. He writes about how red-bellied choose their nest. Um, he writes, A suitable site is readily found in the decayed top of some tree, or in an old stump near a stream along the edges of a pasture, or close to some road and less often, farther in the center of a forest. Deciduous trees, especially the softer wooded ones such as elms, 
basswood, maple, chestnut, poplar, willow, and sycamore are preferable to the harder kinds, such as ash, hickory, oak, etc. So before they've even picked their nesting site, they got to pick a mate, and they begin doing this uh, in late March. Mostly males, but also females, will use a wide variety of displays and calls to attract mates and also show off for them. Um, they'll use drumming calls to kind of resonate throughout the forest and attract a mate. Um, and then once they find each other, they have some pretty interesting foreplay. Um, one of them is called the Red Enhancement. Um, sounds like something, a pill you might see at a gas station counter. But red enhancement display is where males and females will raise the feathers along their neck to show off their nice red nape feathers. They also do something called a stiff pose. This is also gas station enhancement performance pills. The stiff pose where the birds will arch their backs and raise the feathers to give themselves a sexy hunchback appearance. Nothing nothing hotter than Quasimodo. I guess that's what Esmeralda thought, so okay. Um, before actually mating, though, these birds will often engage in reverse mounting. So the female will actually mount the male at first. Um, and I'm not sure what this means, but, you know, it happens. And then the male will mount the female after that. But this mounting, it's not actually how they mate. Because remember, birds have cloacas. And I describe a cloaca basically as a whole that does three things. So they need to touch those cloacas together. So after he mounts the female, he'll actually kind of rotate himself around. Um, he'll kind of go on his back and side so that the birds kind of form almost like an X and they can press their cloacas together. And they don't, you know, just wham, bam, they're done. Thank you, bird. Um, they mate a lot um, throughout a breeding season, sometimes even way before they are even thinking about laying eggs and, you know, even after sometimes too. Um, and they kind of choose like 50, up to 50 favorite spots where they want to mate, you know. So they like this branch over here and I don't know, they like this tree over here. So um, they're really, you know, forming a very strong pair bond um, during a breeding season. Um, as I'm talking about their mating, I can't help but throw out this random fact. Um, red-bellied sperm has been shown to be very different from other woodpecker species and actually more resembles duck sperm. It's described as compact and button-like, but with a slender nucleus. I don't know what to do with that information, but whatever. Now you know way more than you ever wanted to about red-bellied woodpecker sperm. Um, it's not all just date nights and cloacal kisses for these birds, though. They also need to work at creating a nesting cavity for their future children. And both sexes will work together to excavate their nest holes. Males will generally begin excavating and usually do it at several different nest sites. And then the female will kind of help, but she'll also make the final decision on which one to double down and, and, uh, and you know, fully excavate and choose. Nesting cavities are generally between 5 to 70 feet off the ground, um, but can be as high as 120 feet. I also found one instance in the Everglades National Park in Florida where red bellies attempted to make a nest only one foot off the ground in a coconut palm stump. This was not very successful. The nestlings were eaten by fire ants. Um, 
but they also don't always excavate their own nesting cavity every year. Sometimes they'll use the same nesting cavity year after year. They, they, it appears they do this a little less than other woodpeckers like the red-headed woodpecker. Um, but this work on a nesting cavity is really exhausting. It can take 7 to 13 days to excavate a nest. And sometimes after they do it, they have to wait a whole week just to like recover their energy before they even start like laying eggs and raising young. Um, and then the work's not over there. On top of the work of feeding their young, um, they have to expend massive amounts of energy to, f to defend their nesting cavities. Usually populations aren't dying off of hunger or thirst or disease. A lot of times the rate limiting factor is these nesting cavities, and there's a huge amount of competition for them. And it doesn't help that European starlings are also nesting cavity birds and are highly aggressive. Starlings, northern flickers, red-headed woodpeckers, and flying squirrels consistently evict red-bellied woodpeckers from their nesting cavities when they have the chance. Studies done in Missouri and Mississippi show approximately 50% of red-bellied woodpecker nesting cavities are lost to these species. Sometimes when they're evicted, red bellies are able to save their eggs. They'll actually grab their eggs in their beak and take them to one of those like backup cavity nesting sites or they'll kick out some other smaller bird. Um, they've been observed doing that. They also dish it back out. Um, like I mentioned, they will um, evict some smaller bird species, but they'll evict starlings too and flying squirrels, but uh, at much lower rates than, you know, than the flying squirrels and, and starlings do to them. They bully a lot of smaller species too. Um, there's a lot of concern about the endangered red cockaded woodpecker um, because they dwell in these dwindling mature pine forests and they're at high risk of going extinct. Um, it's really hard to make nests in, um, in pine, mature pine forests. Um, it takes several years to excavate the nest. There's like a bunch of resin, which surprisingly resin can like coat birds and kill them. Um, and you know, pine trees, it's hard to find a, a good dead one to make a nest in. Uh, so there's a lot of competition going on in these forests. Um, red bellies have been observed perching on the lip of red cockaded woodpecker cavities and then spending hours, uh, ejecting one by one, the nestlings and the adults from the nest. But once the red belly woodpeckers do secure their nesting cavity, um, by hook or by crook, um, the female will lay one egg a day for an average of four to five eggs. Uh, both sexes will incubate the eggs. Um, the male will mostly incubate at night, though. After 14 days, the eggs hatch. Nestlings are born blind and naked and are fed by both their mother and their father. After 22 to 27 days, juveniles are ready to leave the nest. Their parents may continue to feed them for an additional six weeks after they've left the nest. And interestingly, parents tend to divide their broods up. Um, they kind of like pick their favorite like one to two kids and focus on feeding and caring for them. Eventually, however, the juveniles are grown enough to make their own way in the world and the parents will chase them off. Especially the male uh, will be the kind of more aggressive one kicking them out of the house. And while these birds uh, don't really migrate, um, they will spread out some, uh, the juveniles. You know, they have to go establish their own territories. And it tends to be females that spread out farther than males. This is a common thing in the bird world. We talked about this in the rough grouse episode also. And while red bellies don't mate for life necessarily, um, 
they do form these intense pair bonds um, every single year and are really pretty dedicated during the, the breeding season. Um, once breeding is over and the young are off on their own, the pair bonds tend to dissolve, but that doesn't mean they might not meet back again the same individuals um, in the spring. Um, there are records where you know a pair has been observed consistently meeting up and using the same nesting hole year after year, like for three or four years. The oldest known red-bellied woodpecker was 12 years old and three months and was in Georgia. So these birds can stick around a territory for a while, and it gives us a real good chance to observe them and, and get to know their individual behaviors. And when you're observing these guys, your best bet is going to be hearing them and finding them that way. They're very vocal year-round. Uh, their most recognizable call is that chuck. I also see it referred to as a queer call. It's given in a wide variety of situations, everything from attracting a mate um, to a contact call between mated pairs. Um, I see that a lot. There's, you know, the male and the female together, and they're both constantly kind of chucking at each other like, you're right, you're right, you're right. Um, and to signal um, a mate to come back to the nesting cavity, they'll also give some chuck calls. They also do a rolling call. And I've noticed this usually serves as a territorial or alarm call. So when you hear this, you know that a red belly is pissed off. Um, usually there's a member of uh, its same species, a rival in the area. Um, they tend to, uh, you know, uh, the male will chase off other males, the female will chase off other females. So when you hear that call, look for the intruder and pay special attention to the body language of these birds. Um, you might notice something called the floating threat. Um, and this is where a red-bellied um, is flying at a rival and he will seem to like float or pause for a second in the air. Um, basically, he's telling his rival, if you don't move right now, I'm going to kick your ass. Um, and usually that works. The rival will see the float and kind of take that extra second to fly away before the other bird will land on the perch where he once was. Also look for angry birds spreading out their wing feathers. Um, sometimes they do this even when they're climbing up the side of trees and it makes them look like they're giving the tree a big hug, but actually they're pissed off. I really hope this audio turns out okay because there's so much noise going around in Elkins right now. We got freaking the street chihuahuas. It's, uh, it's crazy. And speaking of making noise, um, red-bellied woodpeckers will drum on dead trees um, and make this echoing sound throughout the forest. This drumming has nothing to do with looking for bugs. Um, they're trying to mark territory or track mates. It's really cool because, I mean, in my opinion, they're using these as like an instrument. They're finding these hollow, resonant dead trees to produce a loud noise to echo throughout the forest. And they won't um, leave it at trees either. They've been known to drum on structures such as uh, metal light bulbs or like metal light fixtures. Um, like they know when something's going to make a nice resonating sound. So woodpeckers, nature's ultimate percussionists, I think so. All right, so let's dive into some woodpecker evolution. Let's find out how these red-bellieds got to be. 
I talk a lot about woodpecker evolution in my first episode ever. I've already referenced it, big peckers about the pileated woodpecker. Um, I kind of go in a little bit more depth there, um, but here's a brief summary. So the evolutionary history of woodpeckers starts with something called the Afroaves radiation. Basically, when the supercontinent Gondwana broke up 180 million years ago, many bird species were separated into two continents, kind of early Africa and in proto-Australia. So these species then diversified on their two respective continents and spread out from there to conquer the world. Other bird groups that came from the Afroaves radiation include owls, kingfishers, and vultures. Southeast Asia seems to be the place where woodpeckers first evolved as a distinct family of birds. Rhinex and piculates um, appear to be sister clades of the woodpeckers. I talk about them in the uh, Big Peckers episode. They kind of morphologically resemble primitive woodpeckers. And the woodpecker split from Rhinex about 26 million years ago and then piculates around 23 million years ago. By 20 million years ago, woodpeckers had spread throughout the world, um, and this is demonstrated by kind of these island populations of woodpeckers in the Caribbean, the Antillean woodpecker, the Cuban green woodpecker. Um, they became distinct species about 19 million years ago, and they're really like living fossils. They demonstrate some of the most basal, some of the most primitive um, woodpecker um, characteristics that the ancestral woodpeckers likely had. Um, and these are stuff like they don't have those stiff tail retrices that they can use as a third leg to prop against the trees, um, and they don't drum on trees um, the way that our more modern woodpeckers do. Now, the red-bellied woodpecker genus, Melanerpes, first began to form around 14 million years ago. Um, and based on kind of my own understanding of, of the phylogical tree of these species, um, it appeared that that is when they made it to North America. Um, and I'm basing this off of because the Melanerpes genus and also its most closely related genus, the sapsuckers, um, they are, occur only in North America. So I'm thinking somewhere around 14 million years ago, you know, some ancestral woodpeckers flew over from Asia to North America and then became these two distinct genuses. Melanerpes is an impressive genus of birds. They've done well for themselves here in North America. It's the largest radiation of woodpeckers into the New World. The genus uh, around 12 million years ago was when it really came into itself. It split off from the sapsuckers. And at this time, 12 million years ago, this was the mid-Miocene period in North America. It's a time when grasslands were rapidly expanding and allowing animals such as three-toed horses, hornless rhinos, and elephant-like gomphotheres to flourish. The Melanerpes ancestors were successful in this climate and also began to um, spread and exploit other niches such as the dry woodlands of eastern North America. Some spread to the Caribbean islands with at least two separate colonization events occurring. Around 6 million years ago, Melanerpes ancestors began spreading to South America, likely island hopping on the still-forming Panamanian land bridge. At least three colonization events took place from North America to South America. And then when the Panamanian land bridge finally completed around 2 to 3 million years ago, some of those South American species spread back and hopped to uh, Mesoamerica to form new species there. As the climate began to cool in the Pliocene and Pleistocene, glaciers began to cover North America, forcing many species into areas of refugia, or these like fragmented habitats where they're safe from the icy sheets. 
I've talked about refugia um, with a lot of bird species, most recently with the barred owl. Um, and it's kind of a driver for evolution because species get separated and then they become different subspecies or maybe entirely different species. Um, but with the red-bellied woodpecker, um, around 2.5 million years ago, it had formed itself as a distinct species. But with the red-bellied woodpecker, um, around 2.5 million years ago, it was established as like its own species. But with the ice sheets, it appears that there were at least two populations separated. One of these separated species and refugia was in Florida. Um, and genomic testing of Floridian red-bellies shows little genomic variation along them. So that means that these red-bellies likely were separated in Florida by the ice sheets and then have just stayed there ever since. And then when you look at other red-bellies all across the eastern U.S., it suggests that they had been contained to either one or more islands of refugia. And then when the glaciers receded, they kind of spread all across the U.S. from there. So there's way more uh, genomic variation with them. Now, this has spurned the argument among some people that the Floridian population deserves its own separate subspecies called Melanerpsis carolinus perplexus. And I'm just as perplexed as you are as why Florida needs its own subspecies. But they're backing it up with the genomic data, and they also have some morphological data to back it up too. The Floridian red-bellies have a distinct tan-colored band just between their nostrils and eyes. If you're a dirty birder in Florida, Zach, I'm looking at you. Look out for this field marker. Um, send me a picture. Send me your observations. Do you notice this kind of tan colored band between the nostrils or does it just look like any other red belly to you do you think it deserves its own perplexus subspecies call in florida man <laughs> um and the red-bellied woodpecker um its species is actually part of like a super species group um it contains five closely related individuals the red-bellied woodpecker, the golden-fronted woodpecker, the Gila woodpecker, the West Indian woodpecker, and Hoffman's woodpecker. All these woodpeckers look really similar when you look at pictures of them. They all have that zebra pattern on their back. They have kind of the same body shape. Um, they all have like some red on their nape or on their head. Uh, the golden-fronted is the most closely related to the red-bellied. Um, they look really almost identical, except that the golden-fronted, um, instead of having the red crest that the red-bellied male does, the male gold-fronted has yellow on its nape and yellow around its bill, but then it has a little red cap on, too. And although they are closely related, the gold-fronted and red-bellied appear to hate each other. They have this narrow band um, of overlap in southern Oklahoma and east Texas. It's kind of where the deciduous forests of the red-bellied mix with kind of the more open brushland that the gold-fronted prefer. And um, researchers have placed uh, stuffed dummies of, uh, of each bird species in their overlapping territory. And they will consistently attack and kind of rip apart the dummies of uh, the rival closely related bird. But this war, uh, I mean, as Shakespeare showed in uh, Romeo and Juliet, does not stop love. And there is breeding and hybridization between these two bird species. Where art thou, golden-fronted? What lights through yonder golden brow? 
Oh, God. I'm forgetting uh, any Shakespeare that I learned in school. Okay. So, let's go into some parasites and predators of these birds. Their eggs, like eggs of any bird, are preyed upon a lot by snakes. Um, also, red-headed woodpeckers and European starlings have been observed um, preying upon the eggs of red-bellied woodpeckers. Rat snakes and pileated woodpeckers have been documented taking nestlings from red-bellied um, woodpeckers. So, man, those those pileated woodpeckers, they're, they're the largest um, eastern woodpecker um, since the ivory belt has gone R.I.P. And uh, adults get killed by predators such as sharp-shinned hawks. Black rat snakes will kill adults. And, of course, house cats. As far as parasites, um, you know, birds get everything from feather mites to tapeworms to blood parasites. These are ubiquitous across all bird species. Every bird has some kind of parasite burden. Um, usually they're in very low numbers. It's just kind of a background, a little infection going on. Um, they don't significantly alter the bird's health. However, there also are some studies that suggest that parasites uh, may drive mate selection in birds. Like a bird that has a lower parasite burden is that's more resistant to parasites, has better cleaning practices, you know, he's going to look better. He's going to have brighter plumage, and so a female might choose him. So there's kind of this constant evolutionary war going on um, between the parasites adapting to exploit new areas and the birds um, literally choosing mates that are more resistant to parasites. Kind of similar to some of the studies you see with humans with the way that we choose mates is based off of, you know, different immune systems and stuff like that. Um, there's a lot going on. In red-bellied woodpeckers, the parasite burden seems to vary a lot depending on the time of year. To head back to Florida, um, a study there found that in the summertime, 80% of red-bellies were infected with the blood parasite Hemproteus valens. But in the wintertime, that number dropped to almost 0%. This makes sense. Heme proteus is kind of similar to malaria. It's transmitted by blood-sucking insects like mosquitoes. So in the winter, when it's too cold for mosquitoes, you know, it, it won't really get passed on. Um, but also it's thought that the stress of mating and raising young in the spring makes woodpeckers more prone to infection. Another study um, conducted in the same area of northwestern Florida found a relatively low intestinal parasite burden in red-bellied woodpeckers. It ranged from about 11 to 23% of individuals had intestinal parasites. Two of these parasites, Realentina centuri and M. centaurorum, were specialists only found in red-bellied woodpeckers. Of note, there's also a species of eyeworm called Oxyspirura. And it was only found in 2% of these birds in Florida, um, in the Florida pylons that they studied. But there's been other studies conducted of this Oxyspirura uh, eye worm, which sounds awful, an eye worm, um, in the woodlands of Louisiana. And it found about 56% of woodpeckers in that area were infected with uh, this eye worm. Red bellies can also be infected with parasites that can be transmitted to humans. You may have heard of Toxoplasmosis gondii before. It's a parasite that infects the brain tissues of its hosts and is classically transmitted from mice to cats. Sometimes, though, it can make its way to humans, and that's one of the reasons why pregnant women are told not to clean out cat litter boxes. 
One case study in 2002 in Clark County, Georgia, discovered Toxoplasmosis gondii in a wild red-bellied woodpecker. This woodpecker was found violently seizing. Um, it was in real bad shape, and so it was euthanized. But then on autopsy, they found Toxoplasmosis gondii in its brain. Um, I really want to mention this because, uh, you know, what if this bird, uh, a household cat, had gotten a hold of it, eaten it, gotten Toxoplasmosis gondii, and then, you know, given it to, to some poor pregnant woman? Um, so this is just another reason uh, to shout out to Dr. Riley in my interview with her to keep your cats inside or leashed when they're outside. Um, very important. Well, that just about does it for this episode. Um, I usually end on folklore, but I really couldn't find any specific to this bird. I was doing a lot of research, um, looking up the Cherokee names for red bellies and trying to search legends, and I really couldn't find any. Um, the story I told in the beginning is probably the closest we can get. Um, however, I did find an account. Um, Audubon mentions that the sailors aboard the schooner USS Spark uh, like to cook a dish using the red-bellied woodpecker, and they refer to this dish as cha-cha. Um, <laughs> this is kind of a pun on chow, I guess, um, and then also the sound that the red-bellied makes. And I guess the sailors really enjoyed uh, putting some red-bellied in their bellies. So that's it for the red-bellied woodpecker. Um, let me know if you've seen any lately in the woods or at your feeders. Um, have you ever noticed a strong odor? Um, <laughs> um, and really just contact me in general. It's nice to know that people are listening. It keeps me putting out these episodes, um, doing more interviews. Let me know your ideas for the show. Really just anything. Email me, dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com. Check out the Instagram. Send me photos. You know, like... Uh, come on, let's get involved, you guys. Let's get more people involved in the awesome hobby of birding. And let's just talk about it like normal fucking people and have fun with it. So, all right, you guys, that's enough from me. As always, stay dirty, my birdies. Dirty Bird Podcast is brought to you by me, John, with our rotating panel of guests and co-hosts. Thanks for being on the show, guys. I really appreciate it. Our intro music is by Ricky Pistone, a.k.a. Dick Piston. And our outro music is by the Sidewalk Slammers. Check them out wherever you get your music. And also, check out our theme song music video on YouTube. Our cover art is done by my beautiful fiancé, Lauren. Thanks for listening. Send any listener mail to dirtybirdpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram.